Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Tim, Jesse, Saints here at Grace Fellowship. It's always a, a privilege to be able to preach the word um, to brothers and sisters in different congregations to have that opportunity of fellowship. Uh, thank you for inviting me and giving this opportunity. So the text we'll be looking at this morning is 1 John 4, 9. We'll just dig right into it. I'll be preaching from the ESV, but I wanted to read 1 John 4, 9 from the King James Version. So I like the way it reads there. First John 4, 9. And this, the love of God, was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Often it seems Christians are depressed or sad or downcast when they think about the love of God the Father towards them. It's easy to convince a Christian that Christ loves them because he died for them, but it's hard for us to feel accepted by the Father. We wonder, what is the Father's heart towards me? At times, we can feel sort of peeking over Christ's shoulder is the Father who is uh, agitated, edgy, uh, ready to condemn and convict. Or maybe for you, you just have a really hard time seeing God the Father as Father. Maybe he is someone who looks like uh, your earthly father to you or an uncle, or a friend's father. Many Christians feel like that, and because of that, I've decided to call this sermon the bosom of the Father's love. So it's a phrase from a 17th century theologian and pastor named John Owen. That's where I got that, that phrase from. The Bible says that we have communion with God the Father in Love. We know that the Son also loves us and that the Holy Spirit is the one who pours the love of God into our hearts. That's true, but at the same time, the Bible speaks in a specific way about the love of the Father. In 1 John 4 9, John writes, God is love. He's referring to the love of God the Father there. We know that that's true because in the very next verse, verse 9, he goes on to explain how this love has been made known to us. God the Father sent his only Son into the world. So this morning, as we consider the Father's great love, I want us to see that all the benefits of election, of forgiveness, of justification, of sanctification all flow from the free fountain and spring of the Father's love. As John Owen put it, all these graces and benefits are found in the bosom of the Father's love. That love was displayed in sending the Son with the result that we might live through him. So we'll see this 
by considering three headings. First, the father's love prior to sending the son. That's verse 9a, 1 John 4, 9a. The father's love expressed in sending the son, 9b. And the purpose of the father's love expressed, 9c. So we'll be dealing with one verse this morning. 1 John 4, 9, but we'll be looking at it in sections. So again, our text says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So God's love was made manifest or revealed in him sending the son. Now, for something to be revealed, it assumes that it was already there. And if it's already there and it's revealed, that means that God is um, exposing, showing, revealing, manifesting to us something that was present prior even to our knowledge of it. In the past, when a car company would reveal their latest model, they would park it on a showroom floor, cover it with a sort of white veil, and then when it was time for the big reveal, they would pull off the veil and expose their new model. God's love was made manifest. It already existed, but it was revealed in him sending the Son. Let's consider first the Father's love prior to sending the Son. Historically, within the church, theologians summarize the love of God in three categories. One of those three categories refers to God's pre-temporal love. In other words, his love for you before the foundation of the world. The Christian thinkers in the past were trying to work through and understand the biblical text, and especially as it talked about the love of God. Francis Turretin, for instance, who was a 17th century Italian theologian, taught this threefold love of God. First, there was God's love of benevolence, where God wills good to the elect, Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption. This was before the foundation of the world, before sending the Son. The second category was God's love of beneficence. In this, he redeems his people. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So, by his benevolent love... God predestines, and by his beneficent love, God redeems, or he regenerates. The third category was God's love of complacency. In other words, his love of delight. In this, he rewards his people according to their holiness. Now, why do I take the time to talk about this threefold love of God? Because often, I think when we think about the love of God, we only think about this in reference to that second category, the regeneration that we experience through Christ. We admit Christ died for us, he loves us, but we don't have a strong theology of the love of God the Father. That love that was behind and caused the sending of the Son. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
John is focusing our attention here on the love of the Father who gave. God so loved that he gave. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Uh, Here we see Paul's sort of Trinitarian benediction. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in this benediction, Paul is directing our eye towards something specific in each person of the Trinity. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and what? The love of God, the Father. This is what John Owen would say that we ought to linger over. We ought to meditate on. He said that we should meditate on the multifaceted nature of the love of God in order to appreciate its wonder. In 1 John 4, 9, this text is not primarily a reference to God's general love for his creatures as image bearers. John is drawing God's, drawing out our attention to God's love here that unique and specific love of the Father, which was the cause of the Son's redemptive mission, a love that existed before sending the Son. In John Gill's commentary on 1 John 4, 9, he says, His specific love towards his elect, that which was before, is manifested. It was secretly in the heart from everlasting, It did not begin at the mission of Christ into the world, but was then in its most glaring manner manifested. He's talking about the love of the Father. He goes on to say, there were several acts of it before the Son came. One, the choice of them in Christ. Two, the appointment of him to be their Savior. Three, the covenant of grace made with them and their account. There were more secret and hidden, but now the love and kindness appeared. It broke forth and shone in all its glory. This is the most clear proof, a plain and full demonstration of it. I don't know what you might be going through right now. All of us are going through something. But I know it can be easy for us to think that God's love for us is weakened or becomes shaky in seasons of affliction or suffering. Some of you have friends and family that are maybe sick or have died or have had relationships torn or fractured. Others are just anxious during this time, maybe struggling with sins and frustrated with the pilgrimage of the Christian walk in a fallen world. And so we doubt and we ask, does God still love me? Well, all of that was sort of my intro. But let's look at the first part of 1 John 4, 9 here. In this, the love of God was made manifest toward us or among us. What does it mean that God's love was made manifest? 
So manifest is a word that means to make known or to make clear. Some translations say God's love was revealed. In other words, or it's another way of saying rather, the uh, same thing, manifest, revealed, made known. Jesus used the same language in John 17, 6, when he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus manifested, he made known the Father's glory, his name, his divine attributes to his disciples. Uh, if you turn over to 1 John 1, 2, 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. Here John says something similar. He says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 is a beautiful passage which says something very similar. It says, we share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse 9, who saved us and called us to his holy calling or to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So here we see the loving, electing purpose of God before the ages began. The Bible uses the same language of manifest, appeared, revealed in 1 John 3, 5, 1 John 2, 28, uh, John 21, and other places. All these texts are saying similar things, the same thing in different ways. They talk about something being made known. And here in 1 John 4, 9, the manifestation is clearly referring to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the incarnation of Christ is revealing the Father's love. The origin of love is in the being of God, but the manifestation of this love was in the coming of the Son. 1 John 4, 9 goes on to say that the Father's hidden love his loving purpose is manifested. It's made clear among us. John is saying that God's love was manifested in our midst. That's what that phrase mean, um, means, uh, among us. When Paul is talking with King Agrippa in Acts 26, he urges his case and says that the incarnation of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, were done, he says, openly. It wasn't in a corner somewhere. Acts 26, 26 says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I will speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. God's love was revealed to his people openly, among us. So this phrase has a public sense but it also has a personal sense. Some translations say the love of God was manifested in us. That God would 
that that love that God made clear among us is meant to produce something in us. God's manifested love was not just a witness to the world, but the word became incarnate for the salvation of specific people to do something in them. John 14, 21, I'll read it. Whoever has the commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the Father's particular and specific love was aimed at the heart's of individuals with names, people who were predestined before the ages began. God's particular love was manifested for specific individuals of the church, both then and now. Christian, the Father's love was manifested or revealed for you. For you. You may not feel loved right now, but a precise event took place in human history, the hinge on which all creation and eternity swings. It is the revelation of the Son for the glory of our triune God and the redemption of the elect. Now, John goes on, and he's about to give the indisputable answer to how God's love has been conclusively revealed. In other words, if there's any question or doubt in the mind of the believer that God loves them, John is giving the proof. That God sent his only son into the world... That's how we know. The Father's love is expressed in sending the Son. Um, Young ladies at times can get swept off their feet by a young man who promises his love and devotion. Um, I've been at my church since 2007. I've seen this a few times. Uh, The older sisters who are wiser and more experienced, they'll come alongside them and say, sister, darling, I know this brother, this young man expressed his love for you, but where's the proof? She said, well, he told me he was going to marry me five years ago, and he's just waiting to get his stuff in order. She'll say, darling, (laughs) where's the proof? Well, God is not... um, a zealous young man who expresses his love without evidence. He is not a man at all that he should lie. But he is given the proof, the manifestation of his love in the sending of the Son. This is the proof of what he's promised. The Father has given us this proof. 1 John 3.16 says, but this, or by this, rather, we know love, 
because he laid down his life for us. The crucifixion of Christ happened in time and space. But 1 John 4, 9 says that this was the love of the Father, or rather that it was the love of the Father that sent the Son and only his one and only Son to lay down his life. This the Son willingly and joyfully does in covenant agreement. So it's not like the Father says, uh, I love them, you will go and, and die for them. And the Son says, well, do I have to? No, no. There is a covenantal agreement within our triune God. The Son goes willingly and joyfully. The Father's love initiated the plan of our salvation. And for that purpose, the Son was sent into the world. So in 1 John 4, 9, it's appropriate to place here the emphasis of the love with the Father. At the same time, we know that the external works of the Trinity are not divided. So we should think of our salvation in Trinitarian terms. In his book on the Holy Spirit, Sinclair Ferguson says, The whole of the Christian life with its deep roots and the love of the Father and its foundation in the grace of Christ is characterized by what Paul calls koinonia, or fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Anything that one person of the Trinity does, all three persons participate in. So there is no gap between the love of the Father, the love of the Son, or the love of the Holy Spirit. When you think about your relationship with the Son and how he came to die for you, we have to be careful not to tear it away from the love of the Father. Uh, It's not this sort of separate side category where the Son really loves us. He's shown it, but the Father, he has good days and bad days. That's That's a wrong way to view the love of our one God who eternally exists in three persons. Jesus was sent to die for sin because the Father loves you, not in order to get the Father to love you. There's a difference between those two. And the central event for the revelation of the Father's love was the sending of the Son, again, for you. I think sometimes we're tempted or we can be tempted to want more than what God has given us. So we've been working a job for a couple of decades and we're laid off. Has God's love for you shifted? Has he cheated you in some way? Maybe we desire to be married and the right one just hasn't uh, come along or pursued us. Has God lied? Is he withholding love from you? The answer is, of course, no. He gave his son the clear proof and evidence. Are are we suspicious of God, of being partial and stingy in his goodness? He did not spare his own son. How will he, with him, not give us all things freely? Joyfully, even. We need to pause, reflect, repent, even, 
and inject into our struggling hearts the promises of our covenant-keeping God. His love shown and reflected. Ferguson encourages that we need to take, he says, daily doses of the Father's love and reflect on the privilege of being his adopted children. Jesus is the beam, but the Father himself is the son of eternal love. Christ is the stream, Ferguson says, but through him we are led to the Father who is the fountain of all grace and kindness. In 1 John 4, 9, the apostle goes on to say that the Son was sent from God. So God sending is not um, unfamiliar in, in Scripture. God sends angels. Uh, he sends spirits um, or people. We see that in Scripture. Acts seven thirty five says God sent Moses. Luke 1, 19, you see God sending the angel Gabriel. Uh, Hebrews 1, 14 talks about uh, ministering spirits being sent out to serve those who are to inherit eternal salvation. So this idea of God sending, again, isn't unique. But what is unique is the one who was sent. John says that God sent his only son. Now, the Greek word John uses here for only is the word monogenes. It's two words that were borrowed from the Greek that we brought into English. Mono means one, and genes the word from where we get gene. The son is unique. John 1.14 says that he is the only son of the father. John 3.16 and John 3.18 calls Jesus the only son of God. Jesus is the only son of God in the sense that he is eternally begotten, distinct from any other son or daughter. If you're a believer... You are a son or daughter of God. You can, you can claim that. You are adopted. God has many children, but Jesus isn't just another one of them. He is unique because he shares the very nature of the Godhead. So the origin of your sonship is grounded in Christ's sonship. But Jesus is the divine son of God. St. Jerome, an early church father writing in the 4th century, said that it is our honor, our honor isn't to share in God's essence with regard to his very nature, but to share in the realm of his grace. For the reason why the Father loves us is that he loves the Son. Therefore, all who belong to the Son are members of his body and likewise loved. Because of Christ's unique nature and status as the only Son of God, his death is the only death through which we can be given eternal life. All this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. Our sin is so deep and destructive and knit to our human nature, our shame, our guilt, and Adam, that a mere man, a mere human sacrifice is not sufficient to atone for it. 
and remembering that Christ is truly God and truly man, the hypostatic union. He must be man in order to atone for man's sin, and yet God, in order to satisfy the full wrath of God who is eternal and redeem sinful men. Our salvation is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. God, or rather the second person of the Trinity, took on himself humanity. He took on human nature to redeem human nature. All that the Son assumes, he redeems. By the way, the Son wasn't sent because you asked him to come. The sending of the Son and the eternal and infinite mind of God happens outside of time and space, outside of the reach of any man. It's fixed in the nature of God, his wisdom, his holiness, his justice. Again, the second person of the Trinity willingly and joyfully agreed to be surety for all those the Father had given to him. When it comes to your salvation, the divine covenantal redemption of the Trinity is placed outside of your reach. God didn't need your input to elect you. The triune God chose you. You did not choose him. This means that God's love is not contingent upon you, but immutably fixed and grounded and him. That means that when you have great days and you go home, you rest your head on your pillow, you thought about how dearly you love your wife, you kissed your kids before they went to bed, you, you made dinner that night, you were kind to your coworkers, you did well, you rest your head on your pillow, and you wake up the next day and sin is lurking. And we don't only meditate on it, but we give into it and we fall. And we are terrible at work. We treat our spouses terribly, our children, our friends, and we lay our head on a pillow at night. That night, God's love has not shifted from night one to night two. Our comfort that's found in the love of God is not contingent upon your performance. He's not counting whether you've been good enough. Don't confuse me and to be saying that we can sin that grace may abound. We know that. But do not place your love of God in your performance. Do not place God's love towards you in your performance. It's fixed in the person and work of Christ who never sinned, never had a wayward thought or intention or affection perfectly pleased the Father in your place, and he has secured the love of God for you. Circumstances don't determine God's love for us. His love for us doesn't go up and down with good days and bad days. His love for us is not a faucet that we can turn on and turn off by our good works or our evil works. God's love for us is fixed even in the midst of trial. It doesn't lift. It doesn't shift. 
Even when we're chastised because of sin, we can't say this is punishment. Romans tells us to call it God's discipline that we may share in his holiness. So we can't even take chastisement for sin and put it in a category as if God is uh, condemning us unto eternal punishment. He chastises the one whom he loves, for he is treating them as a son. Still, so many of us view God as short-tempered, easily agitated, distant, stoic. John Owen says, how few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With anxious and doubtful hearts, they look at him, their fears, they're questioning his goodwill and kindness. It is true that Christ alone is the way of communion, but the free fountain and the spring of all this is in the bosom of the Father's love. Your sin cannot exhaust the ocean of his long-suffering. And your iniquity cannot reach the depth of his inexhaustible loving kindness. So, when you do sin, don't run from him. Then and there, turn and run to him and find in God a fountain of undeserved mercy and grace. Our first parents ran. They hid themselves. Recognize God's kindness and repent. Turn to God. He loves you. The incarnation proves it. God's constant, eternal, immutable love remains unchanged. And this love was manifested, made clear, in that God sent his only son into the world. The middle section of 1 John 4.9 actually can be read, His Son, the only God sent into the world. Now, the, world, the, the word world here is more neutral. It refers to the place of God's uh, activity and creation. Um, in other places in Scripture, you see word referring to uh, sin negatively. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world or worldly philosophy, but uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And 1 John 4.9 is simply referring to the place where God's love has been put on display. So, the love of God the Father has been manifested in that he sent his Son into the world. That brings us to the last section, 1 John 4.9. Here the Apostle Paul is answering the why. Why God's love was manifested among us in sending the Son. The answer, that we might live through him. And so here we see the purpose of the Father's love expressed. I think as uh, Protestant believers, Reformed Baptists, um, we can have a, a, a theology that is uh, strong as Tim helpfully said earlier, in many other areas, but the love of God makes us uncomfortable. Um, I have my own church background. I came out of a, a sort of a Pentecostal, raised in Pentecostal churches, and uh, from Pentecostal to sort of seeker-sensitive and, you know, everything in between. And there was a strong emphasis on God's love shown through what he gives, right? So God is viewed as sort of a vending machine. Um, 
you plug in your prayer and out comes a new job. Or you gather two or three and there you can ask anything and God will give it to you. So you pray together with sincerity and you get a car, right? And so when I was introduced to the sovereignty of God over grace and salvation and the love of God in that way, I struggled a lot. It's like, yes, I know he loves me, but I had categories <laughs> from my past that informed how I view the love of God. So I had to go through a sort of detox. Um, but I think that we do at times miss the love of God as we're trying to defend God's other attributes. But our God is simple. He's one. He cannot be divided, sparsed out. So we should strengthen our theology of the love of God. Again, here the apostle gives the why. Why God's love was manifested among us in sending the Son. The purpose of the Father's love expressed. <clears throat> Theologians have struggled to come up with language that's strong enough to communicate the assurance of salvation that the elect can have. One phrase that's been used throughout church history is the term pactum salutis. It's a Latin term that's used to describe the covenantal agreement among the triune God to decree and accomplish the redemption of the elect. God has covenanted himself to redeem and to glorify you. It's a guarantee. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We plan, we decree, but we're limited and finite and often unable to follow through and execute. When God decrees something, it is as certain as his very being. In other words, when God fails to fulfill his promise, our triune God fails to be God. God is immutable. He is triune. His word does not change. That's an impossibility, not a category for God. The love of God was made manifest among us and that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. It's a promise. It's not a probability. We will live through him. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Assurance. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. He has passed from death to life. I was talking with a Jehovah's Witness tomorrow morning, yesterday morning. They may come into my house. <laughs> Faithfully. So we started a conversation, I don't know, was that like a month ago, a month and a half? I'm asking my wife. So they've been coming every week. Um, sometimes I've been there, sometimes I haven't. So we've been having this conversation. So yes, yesterday we picked up on assurance, right? So I brought out John 5, 24, because in their theology, you cannot know for sure. You can be very confident, and God honors that, but you can't know for sure. Um, that conversation with them has nothing to do with my sermon. I just thought about it. But we can know for sure, right? Because God has given us his promises and his word. 
So 1 John 4, 9 says we will live through Christ. But John is thinking um, about more than just regeneration here. In Greek, the phrase he uses for that we might live is also communicating the beginning of an ongoing process. That means that the sending of the Son for salvation is not just for safety, or then in the future, but for your daily activity and living now in the present. You've heard people say Jesus isn't just fire insurance. Well, it's true. There's also a process of sanctification happening. Now, if John has in mind more than mere fire insurance, what does it look like to live through Christ in the present? I read 1 John 3.14 a few seconds ago, minutes ago, but I didn't finish the verse. I think we get a clue as to what he has in mind by reading the rest of that verse. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. What's the connection here? One of the most important reasons for God sending the Son into the world is that through faith in him, we might have a life that produces, looks like, shows love. God, who is love, intends to produce Christians who do love. This is one of the main purposes for which the Son was sent. 1 John 3.11, 1 John 3.23, 1 John 4.7, 1 John 4.11 all say, love one another. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. John 14.26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, this is really amazing to, to think about. The love that was given to us in the Son, the love that we have in Christ, is the basis of our fellowship with one another. The depth of our union with one another is grounded in the person and work of Christ. We experience this by the Spirit who bears witness to our spirit as we cry out, Abba, Father. Christ puts the words of his relationship to the Father and the mouth of the believer. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. God has given us many things, even now, that should cause gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts and lips. There is blessing and even, I think, something unique and spiritual about reflecting, lamenting, and longing during hard seasons. Let it send you to God in prayer. We love God by continually entrusting ourselves to him. We are needy and utterly dependent children, given completely to our loving Heavenly Father. This is not, or rather, there is not one blessing that 
you've experienced as a believer that is not connected to or that doesn't spring out of the Father's love for you? Everything. We didn't earn it. We can't keep it. It is kept in heaven for us with Christ guarded in heavenly places. I'll end with a quote uh, from Owen that I think is fitting. If you can't tell by now, I like Owen. All the love for us that we see in, the, in Jesus is the Father's love too. Yes, it is expressed and revealed in the death of Christ, but it is not purchased by it. Indeed, the Father's love, he says, is logically prior to the work of Christ, for the Father himself loves you. This is what we ought to meditate on, to linger over, to sit in, to inject into our hearts again the love of God for us. It is not based upon you. It is not fixed in you. If you're an unbeliever, then the warning, the caution is to repent and believe the blessed gospel because all that stands from a loving God towards you is his wrath because he's just and because he's holy and because he doesn't sweep sin under a rug. By his justice, he must condemn sin. And so I call you to repent of your sin, to turn to Christ, to believe in the gospel, that you would know and understand the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Let's go before God in thanksgiving and prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the scriptures which inform how we think, how we feel, our affections, our mind, our actions. We thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves, but that you have given us your Holy Spirit, the word, the Christian community, the universal church shown visibly in the local church, all these things by your kindness to us. The ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism, these things which you give as displays, evidence even, of your love for us in Christ Jesus. We praise you, Jesus Christ, for dying for sin and atoning for the sin that we've committed against our holy and gracious God. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for applying the work of Christ to the life of those regenerate sinners. We praise you, Father, for sending the Son into the world to die for sin. Praise be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May you continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Christ. May we love our brother and sister with a true love. And may you help us to rest and entrust ourselves and our salvation to you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your only begotten Son. Amen.